Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radio Cloud Native from Marantis, where we break down the week's news on Kubernetes, the cloud native ecosystem, open source, and the wider world of tech. I'm Eric Gregory, and I'm rolling solo this week with a short but sweet look at the ramifications of surging cloud and Kubernetes costs, two major Git vulnerabilities, some fun resources from the worlds of Wasm and eBPF, and more. Before we get started, a couple programming notes that are really just reminders. Uh, we're releasing on a bi-weekly cadence this year, and if you're watching on a stream, you can get RCN in a podcast form from your favorite podcast provider, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the rest. All right, on to the news. Ruby on Rails creator David Hennemeyer Hansen raised eyebrows late last week when he announced via blog post that his company, 37signals, was leaving the public cloud. He followed up with some more details this month, and they were quite interesting. After breaking down a $3 million annual cloud bill, he found that the company was paying about $78,000 USD a month for compute on AWS, while they could get equivalent hardware for $1,300 a month. Of course, you get more than access to the machine with a cloud service, and more on that in a moment. But yeah, that's, that's a pretty big difference. Notably, the largest expenditure in the bill was storage via S3. 37 Signals, of course, isn't the only company looking at astronomical bills. Hennemeyer Hansen goes to pains to indicate that 37 Signals uh, tab has been expertly optimized and they were getting rates based on multi-year commitments. So it's not a surprise that this month has seen a spate of stories about out-of-control cloud and Kubernetes costs. The Register reported on a general, quote, cloud growth slowdown, unquote, citing an Uptime Institute report that showed quarter-on-quarter -quarter AWS revenue growth at 27.5% in Q3 2022, an all-time low for AWS. Of course, lots of businesses would love 27.5% growth, but this is a notable shift in a space that has grown accustomed to the trajectories on every chart going up and up and up. According to the Uptime Institute report, quote, the global macroeconomic environment, specifically high energy costs together with inflation, is making organizations more cautious about spending money. Cloud development projects are no different from many others and are likely to be postponed or deprioritized due to rising costs, skill shortages, and global uncertainty. Some moves to the cloud may have been indefinitely deferred. Public cloud is not always cheaper than on-premises implementations, and many organizations may have concluded that migration is just not worthwhile in light of other financial pressures." Unquote. But before you pack up your cloud bags and duct tape together a bunch of Raspberry Pis in your shed, columnist Rupert Goodwins sounds a note of nuance over at the register uh, with a little bit of shade mixed in. Quote, it's perfectly in order to do as much of the hard stuff yourself as you deem fit, provided you have a clear-eyed view of the competencies, costs, and consequences involved. What are the single points of failure and how do you fail over? How do you test it and who picks up the pieces? If you're really good at this, wouldn't you be better employed selling those services rather than being a CTO in charge of yet another B2B on-demand service? If you're not really good at this, should you be taking it on? Unquote. And that's really the rub right there. The choice isn't between giving AWS a direct line to your Scrooge McDuck money vaults and bringing everything in-house. This is a middle space where a lot of organizations need software-defined infrastructure that provides cost-optimal cloud choice, including private cloud, as well as expertise on demand for dealing with the hard stuff. And that's the territory where DevOps as a service can make a big difference, whether orgs find themselves moving toward or away from public cloud. Over in security world, last week the Git project put out new releases to patch major vulnerabilities in versions before and including version 2.39. The vulnerabilities, CVE 2022-41903, and CVE 2022-23521, 
discovered through a routine Git codebase audit, allow for arbitrary code execution, and users are advised to upgrade immediately. The vulnerabilities are particularly significant if you're using the git archive command in strange unknown repos or if you're using the Windows git GUI. So if that sounds like you, you want to be extra careful and speedy about that upgrade. Elsewhere in security, more details continue to emerge from the breach affecting LastPass and its affiliate company, GoTo, which provides various remote access services. GoTo updated their disclosure this week to add, quote, our investigation to date has determined that a threat actor exfiltrated encrypted backups from a third-party cloud storage service related to the following products. Central, Pro, Join.me, Hamachi, and Remotely Anywhere. We also have evidence that a threat actor exfiltrated an encryption key for a portion of the encrypted backups. The affected information, which varies by product, may include account usernames, salted and hashed passwords, a portion of multi-factor authentication settings, as well as some product settings and licensing information. In addition, while Rescue and GoToMyPC encrypted databases were not exfiltrated, MFA settings of a small subset of their customers were impacted, unquote. If you're affected, the safest course of action remains to assume your relevant data is exposed and rotate accordingly. Shifting away from security, we have a couple of technical pieces to recommend this week. If you're interested in exploring the possibilities of eBPF, or you're struggling to solve a deployment issue with sidecars, check out this piece from Josephine Pfeiffer on Medium titled, Using eBPF to Solve Problems That Sidecars Can't in Cloud-Native Deployments. The piece explores sidecar limitations, including modifying network traffic at the packet level, enforcing complex security policies, providing highly granular visibility into network traffic, implementing custom protocols, and scaling horizontally. Pfeiffer discusses why those issues are challenging with sidecars and how eBPF might help and points towards further eBPF learning resources. Meanwhile, the Chrome Developer Blog has a great post on using Wasm to utilize SQLite in the browser as a replacement for the now-deprecated WebSQL. Apart from just being cool, Wasm's a, a perfect tool to help put SQLite in even more places. Uh, this provides a great option for a client-side relational database for, say, the offline mode of a web app. This new project is directly affiliated with the overall SQLite project and aims to, quote, bind a low-level SQLite 3 API, which is as close to the C1 as feasible in terms of usage, unquote. You can download the Wasm module at sqlite.org slash download.html. Just look for the version that mentions sqlite3.wasm. And I definitely recommend the Chrome developer post as well, which gives a detailed tutorial on implementing SQLite Wasm, as it's called, in the browser backed by the origin private file system. The blog post is titled, appropriately, SQLite Wasm in the browser backed by the origin private file system. And you can find that at developer.chrome.com slash blog. In other Google and Wasm news, kind of breaking Google and Wasm news, uh, the company is hosting an event in Nairobi, Kenya today at the time of recording to discuss its open source Flutter framework for multi-platform apps. And the big features they're showing off are heavily increased graphics performance and the ability to target Wasm and RISC-V architectures. Tim Sneath, director of product and UX for Flutter, told TechCrunch, quote, WebAssembly looks like it's going to give us some improved time to load, reduce the size and number of megabytes transferred over the wire. That seems interesting. The potential for WebAssembly is, both on the web and even beyond, to become this new sort of portable lingua franca. I like the idea that we can take and use other code in other languages in WebAssembly as well." Unquote. Finally, we have a few fun items to close out today. 
Apple released the full source code for one of the company's major releases over the last couple of weeks. And that was 1983's Apple Lisa, specifically the Pascal source code for the Lisa OS. The Lisa was one of the first machines targeted towards individual consumers to offer a mouse-driven GUI. And while its price proved prohibitive at the time, uh, it set the stage for the more familiar Macs to follow. To celebrate the Lisa's 40th anniversary, Apple partnered with the Computer History Museum to make the source code available through a non-commercial license. Apple's own, of course, the Apple Academic License. If you're a computer history buff or just want to poke around some middle-aged Pascal, you can find the Lisa source code at info.computerhistory.org slash Apple hyphen Lisa hyphen code, where you'll have to fill out a form and agree to the license terms to download the 24 megabyte file. And sticking with legacy tech, many observers were intrigued to learn that a well-known national brand in the U.S. is still using floppy disks in 2023. That company? Chuck E. Cheese. According to a TikTok from an employee, the animatronics Ford Kids Entertainment and Arcade chain upgrades its robot puppets in part with a 3.5-inch floppy disk. Ars Technica details the story with a screen grab of the employees showing off a floppy disk labeled Chuck E. Cheese Evergreen Show 2023. And uh, for me, having grown up in the 90s and attended my share of Chuck E. Cheese parties, there is a weird joy in that image. So I'll leave you that with that this week. Weird joy. That's it for today. Thanks to Sharla for producing on this episode. And thanks to all of you for listening. See you in two weeks.